0: Amen. Well, it's good to be back here at Pekin. Last Sunday, uh, I had the opportunity to travel to my hometown. I grew up in Weldon, Illinois. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. There's uh, only about 500 people that live there. When when I grew up there, there's probably about two hundred, two hundred fifty people. Uh, left, but I was able to go and uh, preach in the church that I attended as a child and as a teenager. And I, I worked out the math and I figured that it has been now 36 years since I was inside that church. 36 years. I felt so old. Oh my goodness, I felt old. So Uh, A lot of things in that church were familiar, uh, but there were many things that changed. And as I walked down the halls and in that sanctuary, it flooded my mind with all of these memories. I remembered that I sat over here somewhere and ignored the pastor's preaching and paid no attention to it as a teenager and um, wondered when that service was ever, ever going to get over. I remember that part. (laughs) I remember the Sunday school teachers uh, that I had over the years trying to get me to memorize the the books of the Bible. I remember my confirmation class growing up in the Methodist church and being baptized. Here's a picture of the moment when I was, uh, we got that up there? It showing up? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that an incredible picture? Oh my goodness, we were such nerds back then. So yeah, and, but we uh, had the opportunity, there was five of the seven that were there uh, this past Sunday and so we got to recreate that picture a uh, little bit better uh, this second time around. So uh, over lunch, my high school classmates and I got to spend some time going over story after story of the time that we spent there in that church the district superintendent for the United Methodist Church was there, and she prayed before lunch, and her prayer was moving. She, was, she prayed um, <clears throat> and thanked God for the lasting influence that that small church has had over the lives of all of these people over its years. And it made me think of PFN. It made me think of all the people who have called this church home over the years. I was reminded of the weddings and the funerals that we've had right here in this room. Countless children being taught by countless uh, teachers over the years. Teens receiving a solid foundation in their faith. And the memories of all the people who have walked our halls and sat in our sanctuary are going to last forever. And intertwined in all of those stories will be Jesus, whether or not we remember him or think to mention him in our testimonies. He's always been working in our lives. And as we continue this study about these Ezer women of the Old Testament, we're going to come to a familiar story to a lot of us. I think there's a lot of us that probably have heard this story. Whether or not you grew up in church, you've heard of Esther, And as we read this story, you're going to notice that there is a noticeable absence of somebody's name in the story of Esther. Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name, not one time. Yet you can clearly see how he is working in the lives of the characters in the stories. And just like the stories that my friends and I sat around that table and we were able to tell all of these stories, we may not have mentioned God by name every time. Or when you sit around your table and you tell your stories, you may not think to mention God's name every single time. But if, if people know you, if they know you well enough, it should be clear that God has had his handiwork. God has had his hand on you throughout all of your life. And so the book of Esther tells this wonderful story of God rescuing his people once again. Uh, but before we get into the story of Esther, we need to establish uh, some background here. And, and I know what you're, you're thinking, oh, good, biblical history, riveting, can't wait for this, right? Right? But the interesting thing about the, the Bible is each of its stories fits into its own place. And when we remove a story from his, its historical context within the Bible, we lose part of the bigger picture. And so what we've done over this series is we have intentionally taken you on a chronological tour through the Bible. Why we learn from God through these great women Faith, and so we're going to review some of this so that we understand the context of Esther and and how she fits into the story of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You didn't think I was going to go that far back in history, did you? But uh, except that that story shapes all the rest of the stories. God's design, his purpose was for us to be created in his image, and and yet he made it capable of us so that we could choose for ourselves whether or not we are going to follow God, whether or not we're going to follow his wishes for his creation. Big surprise here, maybe a spoiler alert here, mankind chooses sin over God. And we see that theme over and over and over and over throughout the story of God and his people. God's people finally, eventually find themselves in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt. And just like sin is a a constant theme, so is God's rescue and his redemption of his people. God sent Moses to rescue the people, uh, the Israelite people down in Egypt. And that's where we met uh, Shephra and Puah, uh, whom Cheryl preached about. They were those midwives who refused to follow the decree of the Pharaoh that all the Israelite male babies should be killed upon their birth. Let's control these slaves. Let's, let, uh, let's uh, oppress them this way. And, and they opposed that. It wasn't an easy decision for them. Obeying Pharaoh's decree, obeying one of Pharaoh's laws, uh, could mean death for them. And yet they did it. They were brave. They were strong women of faith, and God granted them favor. The Israelites escaped from Egypt, following God's miraculous parting of the Red Sea. But because of their rebellion again, they end up wandering around in the wilderness, wandering around in the desert for 40 more years until they enter into the promised land that God had waiting for them. And that's where we met Rahab. She hid the spies that the Israelites said uh, well, they were going to prepare to invade and they wanted to find out what was awaiting them. So they sent in these spies and Rahab hid them. It wasn't an easy decision for her because as she got caught... She would have faced certain death, but God granted her favor. Now, I'm skipping entire books of the Bible here, but we don't have a semester-long class uh, to go over all the Old Testaments. We only have a a few minutes or so. So, long story short here. The Israelites are living in the promised land that God has intended them to, to, to live, but they continue to rebel. They continue to do things that God is not pleased of. And so God sets up this system of judges to rule over his people. And if you remember, that's where we met Deborah. She was one of those judges in that era. And she was clearly sent by God to rescue his people. She took on a powerful enemy one that nobody else wanted to, to do anything about. And she obeyed God and he granted her favor. After a few hundred years, the era of Judges ends and the people of God, they cry out, they want a king to rule them now. And even though they had a king in God, God grants them a king with flesh and blood. And so first, or, uh, King Saul is the first king and he is followed by David. That's where we met Abigail, another one of these easier women that God is used. You know, it was her time to talk some sense into David, to talk some sense into God's anointed king. Can you imagine that? She was supposed to talk to the anointed king, talk some sense into him. She had to talk to a man that was leading an army of trained Killers it was a hard decision for her because if it didn't go right, she could be killed. but God granted her favor and for the most part, uh, besides a very couple of pretty famous falls from grace, king david was a was a good king and he had followed the laws of god and uh he set his God's people apart from the rest of the world but it didn't last very long and God's people rebel again and after King David's son Solomon died the kingdom is now going to be split in two it's divided and we have the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of of Judah to the south and each of these now new kingdoms had their own kings and and for the most part Almost all of them were evil and didn't follow the Lord. Yet God is still working in in the midst of all of that. And it's always been his plan for his children to be redeemed. And even though his kids, even though his people, even though his children have gone against them, he still knows what's best for them. And he provides them chances and, and time after time to to correct their errors, but eventually, after warning, after warning, after warning from God's prophets, the people of God continue to rebel against him. And so now we're about 700 years before Jesus is born. The nation of Israel is attacked by foreign invaders, and they are destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. The southern region lasts a little bit longer, uh, but still they weren't taking the warnings from God seriously as well. And and about a 100 years later, the kingdom of Judah is attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And the city of God, Jerusalem, is destroyed, and the people of God are exiled. They are literally kidnapped out of Judah and brought to a foreign land in the east. The Babylonian empire didn't last long either, and they were eventually overthrown by the Persian empire. And all this time, meanwhile, the the people of God, the Jewish people are still in exile during the reign in the Persian empire. And so just so we know when we're talking about now and and where we're talking about, we're, we're now about 500 years before Jesus is born. We're about 500 miles east of Jerusalem in what we would say is modern day Iran. And this is where we meet Esther, another uh, easier helper, another strong woman of faith that God is clearly going to use to rescue his people. Whew, okay, take a deep breath. You made it through the history part, okay? All right. I have fast-forwarded you through literally thousands of years of history, and I've taken you through 16 books of the Bible, okay? Um, and just so you know, my job this morning is really just to set things up for Pastor Callie next week, okay? This is kind of my, my job. I, I'm, the, I'm the teacher here. She's going to be the preacher next week. I'm going to take you through the first half of the book of Esther, and Pastor Callie is going to finish this out. And I want you to go ahead, if you've if you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. Uh, find it there, kind of oh, halfway through or so, not quite halfway through the Old Testament, you'll find the book of Esther. Uh, we're only going to look at a, at a few verses, although we're going to go through this whole story in these first four chapters, so you can kind of follow along there. The book of of Esther, as I said, takes place while God's people are in exile. They are being ruled over by the Persian Empire. The king at the time in the Persian Empire is King Xerxes, uh, although his real name is Ahasuerus, something like that, okay? We're just going to call him King X, Okay. We're, we're just calling King X as easier, and this, this guy was kind of a scum, scumbag, and uh, he doesn't reserve a whole lot of respect anyway, so we're just going to call him King X, okay? So King X was not unlike any of the other Persian kings. He was a pagan king, and he was ruling over a pagan empire. The story of Esther starts in the third year of his reign, and, and King X decides to throw this elaborate party to celebrate the, this anniversary of him being king. He wants to celebrate himself. Okay, and this wasn't some small get together where King X just invites some of his closest friends over for a cookout. No, this is a six month long drunken party for six months. And during this 180 days, King X likes to show off all of his wealth and all of his possessions. And basically he's saying, hey, look at me. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how rich I am. I can do whatever I want. And so on the last day of the party... Our biblical text here says that while the king was in high spirits from wine, which in other words means he was smashed drunk, all right, he called for his wife. He called for the beautiful Queen Vashti to come and to parade around in front of all of the normal nobles wearing her royal crown. Now, what's not... In our Bible, what's not in the biblical text, but's presumed by Jewish scholars, is that she was not supposed to wear anything other than the royal crown. And as you can imagine, chapter 1, verse 12 says Queen Vashti refused to come, <clears throat> and the king became furious and burned with anger. And so he calls his council, he he follows the rules, this is what he's supposed to do, Uh, he has this staff meeting, and he asks all of these other drunken nobles there what they should do about Queen Vasti. what are they going to do about her? And so these irrational men, who are now made further irrational by all of the vast amounts of wine that they've been consuming for six months, decide that well, they become a little fearful of Queen Vashti because if she can do whatever she wants to do, then, well, then maybe our wives will stop paying attention to us. And, and then they get this, the, uh, this idea that all of the other women in the Persian Empire, well, if they see Queen Vashti do this and ignore the king, then they're going to want to be independent of their husbands. And we, we can't have that, right? And so they divide this this plan that Queen Vashti can never come into the presence of the king again. It's really what she wanted in the first place. But that was their rule. And they're going to choose another queen who is better than Queen Vashti and will be more subservient to King X. And if you think this is bad, if you think this is sexist and full of all this misogynistic uh, thinking, we've only scratched the surface. It gets worse. They plan this mandatory beauty pageant uh, to find a replacement for Queen Vasti. And they would gather up all of the uh, young virgins from the entire kingdom. And their kingdom is from Ethiopia all the way to India, and they bring these young girls to the capital of Susa. Now, fair warning here, this is not the version of the story of Esther that you might have seen in the Veggie Tales movie, okay? Okay? Um, when Pastor Shauna and her team talk about the, the story of Esther, they purposely are going to leave out some details of this story. Okay? You get it more of as it is. Okay? Because I think it's important for us to understand what, what Esther and these girls were up against. The Persian Empire at this time was so vast and uh, it was estimated that 50% of the world's population was controlled by the Persian Empire. And so the king sent people out to kidnap all of these young girls. And to make it creepier, these girls were probably in the age range of 12 to 14 years old. King X was in his 40s. I know King Xerxes in the VeggieTales movie didn't seem like such a slime ball that he ends up being in real life. King X has now sanctioned a government human trafficking ring. His government is trafficking all of these young girls. And so King X's staff would then spend a year with these young girls in these beauty treatments and were preparing these girls to spend the night with the king. A different girl every single night until he finds one that will become queen. And so each girl would be paraded into the palace and would be there before the king, would spend the night with the king. And then if she wasn't chosen, she was sent off to never be seen from again, unless the king would call upon her as one of his concubines. So she didn't get freedom. She didn't get to go back home. And so the hero of her story is one of those girls and she is now waited she's waiting for her year of preparations to start so that she can be brought before king x now esther has been raised by her cousin some texts say that he was her uncle but his name was mordecai and the bible doesn't doesn't tell us what happened To Esther's parents but traditional Jewish uh, literature says that Esther's father probably died uh, during the pregnancy and the her mother died during childbirth so she is orphaned and Mordecai takes on the parenting job and he takes it seriously and he's very protective of Esther and when she's summoned by the king he keeps an eye on her He also tells her to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. There's no sense in making matters worse if the king finds out that she is Jewish. And so Mordecai is worried about her and he travels to the courtyard every single day and he checks on Esther and where the girls are kept and he wants to make sure that she's okay. And four years later, Don't let this escape you here this morning. Four years after Queen Vashti was dismissed, the king finally gets to Esther. Folks, let me say this as tactfully as I can. That means it's been 1,500 days and 1,500 different girls. before he gets to Esther. Now Esther is not only beautiful, but she's smart. And she exercises wisdom and humility, and and God grants her favor as well. Our text says, we're up to chapter 2, verse 17, uh, that the king put the crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, it seems like things would be pretty good here for Mordecai and and Esther that, you know, she's now queen and things would be set up for them and things would be good now. But if this was a Hollywood movie and there has been many movies made about Esther over the years, we have to have a plot twist. This can't be the end of the story, right? So Mordecai is working by the palace one afternoon and he overhears this plan that King X is going to be assassinated but it just so happens that he has uh, his adoptive daughter now as the queen. And so he tells her and she tells the king of this plot against his life. And the conspirators, conspirators are are found and they are killed. and And normally there would be this great party for Mordecai for letting the king know of what was going on. But for some reason, Mordecai is overlooked and Now, if you think that King X is a (laughs) dirtbag, we haven't seen anything yet. It gets worse. King X establishes a second in command, a guy named Haman. And in chapter 3, we see Haman start to gain a little bit more influence and control over the kingdom. And as his power grows, and as he's given more responsibilities, his ego grows and his pride grows. And the king's royal officials start to bow down and pay honor to Haman whenever they see him, except Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down. Now, some say that because he was a good Jewish man, that he was obeying the first commandment that thou shalt have no other gods before me, but maybe, but more likely Mordecai hated Haman and Haman hated Mordecai and they just didn't like each other and he wasn't going to bow down to this guy. Whatever the reason, Haman is furious, and he devises a plan to get rid of Mordecai, that Mordecai should die for his insults. And while we're at it, how about we kill the entire Jewish nation? Let's get rid of all of them. And so he tells the king, hey, these foreigners, these exiled Jews that the Babylonians brought over here that we didn't even want, we just inherited them, they're disobeying all of your laws, they're, they're missing everything up. And the only way to stop them is we, if we just get rid of them. But instead of sending them back to, to Jerusalem, he thinks the better idea is let's just commit genocide. Genocide. Let's kill all of them. Let's exterminate this entire race of Jews. And so he even offers to pay for this entire operation to see it through. To the amount of 375 tons of silver. Now I wanted to put that in perspective for you. Uh, uh, An ounce of silver last week cost $24.70 that's $395 a pound. That's $800,000 per ton. So in today's money, Haman was offering $300 million so that the Jews would be exterminated. All because one guy refused to bow to him. Talk about a grudge, right? Right? And so the day was chosen. In 11 months, we are going to start killing the Jews. And the the news takes a while to travel around the the empire, but those in the capital heard right away, and Mordecai is deeply troubled. Chapter 4. Mordecai starts to wail and cry and the news finally reaches Esther that, hey, Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth and uh, something, he's, he's bothered by this. And um, she goes and she tries to calm him down and it doesn't work. And basically he says, instead of me calming down, maybe it's time for you to ri- rise up and do something about this, Esther. But Esther reminds him, says, Mordecai, it's illegal for the even the queen to enter into the king's presence unless she is invited And breaking such a protocol would mean her death. Now this is the longest introduction I have ever had to a sermon, ever. But don't worry, the point here is clear. We're coming up to chapter 4, verse 12. This is what God's word says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Verse 15 Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now let's look at this because I want to glean a couple questions here uh, so we can get ready for Pastor Callie next week. Mordecai knows God. Mordecai is a man of God. He knows that God is faithful to his promises. He knows that God has already made a, a covenant with his people. You see, Mordecai is this man of God. He knows scripture. He's heard the stories of scripture. And so he knows a long time ago back when God's people had just escaped out of exile in Egypt that Moses proclaimed these words to God's people and these are found in Deuteronomy chapter 30 Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back he will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you can love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. See, Mordecai, being a man of God, trusts God, and he trusts God's word. Mordecai knows that God's promise doesn't just end. It didn't end in the exile. God's promise is still true. And he tells Esther, God has placed you in this time and in this place for the accomplishment of his purpose. Folks, the same is true for us. We trust God. We trust that God knows what He's doing, that God put us in this time and in this place. Imagine, of all the people around the world, 8 billion people around the world, God knows all of them and has a purpose for every one of His creations. You are not here by accident. I've jokingly said many times that I, that I think I've been, I was born in the wrong decade, that maybe I should have been born in the 20s or maybe the 50s based on some of my personality and my likes and those choices I've made and things like that. But the creator saw it differently, didn't he? He picked us to exist at this time. Even with everything that's going on around us, in our culture, where we live, in our country, you are not here by an accident. Yet we are, you are where you are because God has chose you to exist here. Here. He has placed people in your life. God has given you opportunities before you. And he has sovereignly ordained that you live in this moment, for his purpose. And who knows? God may have placed you into a particular place or or brought you to a particular set of circumstances to carry out a distinct task. Or maybe it's to say a particular word. Or maybe it was to complete a certain challenge. See, God can do anything he wants Yet he graciously uses his people, his children, to carry out all of his plans and purpose. But if we're unwilling to take up this gauntlet, God is going to carry out his plan. He'll find a different servant, he'll use an alternative course in order to complete his plan of redemption. You are here for a reason. God may not be using you to be called upon as an advisor to a great and mighty king like Esther was. But each one of you, each one of us is being called to minister. We are all called to to minister to a lost neighbor, to a prodigal son. Uh, to a straying daughter, to a sick relative, to a local need, or to a hurting heart. And so let's be ready and willing to be one of God's easier helpers, just like Queen Esther. Because we have been called upon to carry out what God has been prepared in advance for us to do. See, you are part of the story of God. There's another part of this story that we've we've overlooked. When Mordecai finds out of Haman's plan to exterminate all the Jews, it's a day or two before the Passover celebration for the Jews. And so when Esther asked him to fast with her, this is a difficult task because they were supposed to be celebrating the Passover. The Passover for them was this celebration where they remembered back when God brought all of his people out of exile brought them all out of exile in Egypt and rescued his people and Jesus sat down with his disciples one evening and had this meal where they remembered God's redemptive plan and we get to come here together this morning to remember God's redemptive plan you are part of God's story. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And part of it is following our king and our savior